All right, I want to welcome all of you who are joining us for worship today. I want to welcome all my Mount Pleasant and Impact Church family, as well as any guests who might be joining us for worship today. Thanks for being a part of this service. If you got a Bible with you, I want you to go ahead and grab it and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew in the 19th chapter. This weekend, we begin a brand new three-part sermon series called Messy. I know that's an unusual title for a sermon series, but let me try to explain Not long ago, I was going through my Twitter feed. Twitter is a social media site, if you're not familiar. And I ran across an article where the title really captured my attention. It was called 10 Ways to Really Be More Like Jesus. I recognized the author as someone I liked, and so I read it. And he began by talking about recently seeing a post himself called, My New Year's Resolution is to Be Like Jesus. He read it, and he wrote, On the list were things that were true of Jesus, but not often true of Jesus' followers. It stung, but well, it should have. He then went on to write, we don't get to pick and choose what we want from life and from the teachings of Jesus. We do not stand over it. It stands over us. And so I began to think of my own list. What 10 things are involved in following Jesus that perhaps Jesus' followers need to be reminded of? And here's my list. Number one, hang out with sinners. I don't think that requires a lot of explanation. Jesus spent time with sinful people. Number two, afflict the comfortable. And you see that in Jesus' interactions with the religious leaders. He made them very uncomfortable. Number three, comfort the afflicted. And this is something that we all love about Jesus. We think about passages like Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28 where Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Jesus wants to comfort people who are afflicted. Number four, promote the dignity and worth of women. No one really did that until Jesus came along. He was countercultural in that. Number five, protect children. That was another thing that made Jesus really unique. We remember that picture of him in Matthew 18 where he said, let the little children come to me and he compared to little children, or he used little children rather as a spiritual illustration for humility and what it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven. Number six, care more, care more about reaching the lost than catering to the found. That was characteristic of Jesus. He cared more about reaching the lost than catering to the found. There's a great passage in Luke chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, where Jesus is being criticized by the religious leaders again for hanging out with sinful people. And Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He said, I I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. Number seven, care nothing about power, prominence, position, or prestige. And we see that in every part of Jesus' life because he was willing to leave his position of glory in heaven to come down into the world, clothe himself with human flesh, and become one of us to save us. Number eight, live simply. Number nine, be anti-racist. That was a really strong reality of Jesus' life. Maybe the best example of that was when he struck up a conversation one day with a woman, a Samaritan woman at a well. You read that story in John chapter four. And then number 10, the final thing on his list was make sure it's never about you. Make sure it's never about me. And we think of Jesus' words in Mark 10 and verse 45 when he said, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And while I was convicted about everything on the list, at least on some level, it was the first two that really pierced my heart. Number one, about Jesus, 
hang out with sinners, and number two, afflict the comfortable. And as I thought about those two things, my mind went back to all of my study of Jesus in the Gospels. I thought back to all of my study when I was preaching verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew in a series called Let's Talk About Jesus. That wasn't that long ago. We began that study here in November of 2016, and we finished it in April of 2020. I thought about all the things that I learned about Jesus as a part of that sermon series. I thought about gospel stories that probably most all of us are familiar with, stories like uh, Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, parables like the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And uh, I came to the conclusion that there's no question that if you're going to make it your goal to live like Jesus, then you're going to find yourself in relationships and conversations that are sometimes messy because real life is messy. I can't imagine anyone disagreeing with that statement. Not if you have a family, not if you have any friends, not if you have any level of life experience at all. Real life is messy. And this truth, this truth doesn't change when you become a Christian, especially if you are genuinely committed to living like Jesus because uh, the will of God is for all of us to be like Jesus. First John chapter 2 and verse 7 says, whoever claims to live in him must walk or live as Jesus did. And so if Jesus was involved in messy conversations and messy relationships because he was hanging out with sinners or because he was afflicting the comfortable, then we need to, we need to model that same thing in our lives as a part of being like Jesus. So what we're going to do for the next three weeks is look at some encounters in Jesus' life that were messy. And even though they're going to be familiar to many, if not most, of everyone who listens to these messages, I'm praying that each of these encounters will produce a new level of conviction in our hearts that will cause us to be willing to embrace messy lives. And so, having said that, if you've got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 19, let's start off with a familiar story. It's the story of the rich young man or the rich young ruler. We read that story in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. Follow along as I read. Now, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get an eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. And Jesus replied, Do not murder, do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or 
mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. All right. There it is. We always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. In his book, Halftime, Bob Buford tells a story that reminds me of this story we're talking about today in Matthew chapter 19. At the age of 44, Bob found himself on top of the world. He had everything that the world defines as success. He had turned a modest cable television business into an incredibly profitable empire. He was driving a Jaguar. He was splitting his time between luxury homes in exotic places, warm places, beautiful places. He was able to travel anywhere he wanted, anytime he wanted. You could go on and on. But in spite of all of that, he knew that something was missing in his life. He said in his book, all my life I had been great at developing strategic plans for business. Now I realized I needed a plan for me. What should I do now? Where should I invest my time, talents, and treasures? What are the values that give purpose to my life? What is the overarching vision that shapes me? Who am I? Where am I going? Well, in the middle of all that confusion, God brought a man named Mike Cammie, who was known for creating strategic plans for an impressive list of leaders and corporations, into Bob's life. At one point, Mike asked Bob this question. What's in the box? To which Bob replied, what are you talking about? Mike went on to relate an experience he had had consulting with a group of executives from Coca-Cola. He'd asked those people the same question, what's in the box for you? What's in the box for the Coca-Cola Corporation? What's the mainspring of your business, the driving force? The executives got together and they deliberated for a while and then they came back with their answer. And their answer was, Great taste. That's what's in the box for us. And so from there, the Coca-Cola executives went on to conduct a vast array of taste tests. And as a result, they came up with a new formula for Coke that they thought tasted even better than the original one. And that led to the introduction of new Coke. I wonder how many of you who are listening to me are old enough to remember that. Well, to make a long story short, the introduction of new Coke became a business and marketing disaster. And so Coca-Cola brought Mike back in for another planning session where they discovered they had put the wrong thing in the box. So they tried again. And after, after several hours, they came back with a new phrase to put in the box. And this time, the phrase was American tradition. And as a result now, new Coke was gone. Classic Coke went back on the shelves And Coca-Cola never looked back. And by the way, Coca-Cola is the top-selling soft drink in the entire world. Well, after Bob and Mike had spent some time together, Mike said, Bob, I've been listening to you now for a couple of hours. You've told me a lot about your interests and your passions. I'm going to tell you what's in the box for you. I can tell you it's either money or it's Jesus Christ. If you can tell me which it is, I can tell you the strategic implications of that choice. If you can't tell me, you're going to oscillate back and forth between those two values and be confused. Bob Buford writes in his book, no one had ever put such a significant question to me so directly. 
And then he says, after a few minutes, which seemed like hours, he looked at Mike and he said, well, if it has to be one or the other, I'll put Jesus Christ in the box. You know, I have heard and read and taught the story of the rich young man or the rich young ruler more times than I can even guess. I've known this story my entire life. Having grown up in church as a child, I've known this story my entire life. I actually look back in my files this week to see when the last time I preached on this story, this text was, and it was in March of 2019. It was message number 65 in our Let's Talk About Jesus series, which of course was a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Matthew. And when I preached this text in 2019, I said there are three things that we need to learn from the story. The first one is this. We need to embrace the real Jesus. In all of our lives, we need to embrace the real Jesus. You know, the story of the rich young ruler or the rich young man is found in all three of what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And while the story is the same in each of the gospels, the specific language differs a little bit. For example, Mark and Luke's gospel begin by saying that the man came up to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then again, both in Mark and Luke's gospel, Jesus replied, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That's not the way it reads exactly in Matthew's version that we read a moment ago, but that's the version that I want to talk about for a moment. The point was this man didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't understand the magnitude of who Jesus was when he came to him. He thought he was just another rabbi, just another teacher. Well, Jesus knew that. And so Jesus's reply to the rich young man was very deliberate. When he said, good teacher, what must I do to to inherit eternal life, Jesus' reply was very specific and very deliberate. He said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And he said that because he knew that this man needed to know that he was more than just a rabbi. He was more than just a teacher. He was, in fact, God in human flesh. And the point Jesus was trying to make to the man was this. Don't call me good unless you're willing to call me God And that's what I mean when I say we need to embrace the real Jesus. That's the way it has to be with Jesus, not just for this rich young man, but for all of us. When you come to Jesus, you can't come to him just because you like him or just because you're somehow drawn to him because he is a nice person or a kind person or a good teacher or a role model or anything like that, because there's absolutely no benefit that comes to you when you come to Jesus with that kind of perspective about who he is. You have to come to him ultimately You have to come to him as God, and you have to surrender to him. So you have to embrace the real Jesus. That's the first thing we talked about. The next thing we talked about in that March 2019 message was we need to get real about lesser loves, about what I call the lesser loves in our lives. When you read this story, it's obvious that this man was very religious. Because when he asked, what do I need to do to get eternal life? The first thing Jesus said, well, you need to obey the commandments. And when the man said, which ones, Jesus gave him a brief list. Here again is Matthew 19, verses 18 and 19. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Then when the man replied in verse 20, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said, 
If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Well, here's what we need to understand about the story. Money wasn't the problem in the story. It was this man's love of money. Because in the end, holding on to his wealth was more important to him than complete surrender to Jesus. He wanted the assurance that following Jesus would bring into his life with regard to eternal life, but he wasn't willing to meet Jesus' condition. And so, to be clear, I'll say it again, the problem wasn't money. It was his love of money, and that love of money was a lesser love. Anything we love more than Jesus, anything we love more than complete surrender to Jesus, falls into the category of a lesser love. It doesn't compare. The third thing I said we needed to learn from the story or understand from the text is that we all need to accept God's grace. Accept God's grace. Well, in the end, as we've already read, and as you already probably many of you know, this rich young man walked away from Jesus. Matthew 19.22 says, when the young man heard this, heard Jesus saying, well, what you need to do is go sell your possessions, give to the poor so you'll have riches or treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Verse 22 says, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Well, while all this was happening, the disciples were right there watching and listening to everything that was going on between Jesus and this man. And so after the man walked away, Jesus turned to his disciples and he says this to them. This is Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24. I tell you the truth. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And honestly, folks, that throws the disciples into a little bit of a panic because they looked at each other and said, this is Matthew 19, 25, who then can be saved? The implication was if this guy can't be saved, this guy who follows all these commandments, this guy who appears to be so good in so many ways, if this guy can't be saved, no one can. Who can be saved if he can't? But then Jesus replies in Matthew 19 and verse 26 and says, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And to me, that reminds us of and points us to the grace of God. Because it's the grace of God that allows us to be saved. It's the grace of God that allows us to have the assurance of eternal life. Because it's the grace of God that does for us what we can't do for ourselves. I mean, the disciples' question, in a sense, was a fair one. Who then can be saved? Who can be saved based on their own merit or their own goodness? The answer, the Bible says, is no one but the grace of God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. Now, I know that was a, a brief, a brief uh, look at what we talked about the last time we studied this passage. Uh, but it's a pretty good explanation of the story. At the same time, there's something more today that I want to add because as I look at this story, I think it's easy for many people to believe that this is a story that simply doesn't apply to them. That's especially true when we make this story all about the fact that this man was rich, when the emphasis of the story is all on the wealth of this man. Because when that happens, 
It's easy for a lot of people to breathe a sigh of relief thinking, well, you know what? I'm not rich. I don't have a lot of wealth, and so this story doesn't apply to me. Money and wealth would never be a lesser love that would keep me from following Jesus because I don't have enough of either. So instead of thinking about it solely from the perspective of this man's wealth, let's think about it like this. I really believe that we are a people who, for the most part, love to check boxes. That's certainly true of my life. You know, when I come to work on Monday, the very first thing I do is I sit down at my desk. Maybe not the very first thing that I do, but one of the first things I do is I sit down at my desk and I make a to-do list for the entire week. And as I go through my week, I check off the box, so to speak, next to each one of those things that I've written when they're accomplished. But it's not just at church and work where I do that. I have to-do lists for my home. I have to-do lists for my finances. I have to-do lists for my future. I have to-do lists for certain things that I'm involved in in my life and on and on. And I'm sure many of you could probably say the same thing. You may not think about those things from the literal standpoint of checking the box, but actually that's what you're doing as you go through life because we're a people who love, for the most part, we love to check boxes. I see that same thing, or I see that same reality in the life of this rich young man because he came to Jesus with a desire to check a box that was missing in his life. I mean, I'm going to go back to the text and read verses 16 through 20 again. I think you'll see it with me. Now, a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones, the man inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. Now note this, what do I still lack? Well, in that conversation, Jesus mentioned six different commandments that the man needed to follow. That's certainly not all the commandments, but in the story, that's the, that's the number that Jesus listed. He listed six different commandments, and the man basically said, check, 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 check. What do I need to do next? What's left? Now, I don't doubt the sincerity of the man in his desire to seek the assurance of eternal life, to get that from Jesus. I don't, desa- I don't doubt the sincerity of this man for a minute when he came asking what good thing he needed to do to get eternal life. When I look at Matthew 19 as a whole, it's clear the man came at a time when there were probably a lot of people around. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 2 at the beginning of the chapter makes it clear that there was a large crowd that was following Jesus. But the size of the crowd didn't bother the man. He wasn't self-conscious about the number of people. He was just so earnest in his question and desire for an answer that he didn't worry about that. In Mark's account of the same story, we're told that this man ran up to Jesus and fell on his knees asking the question. Folks, I believe he was genuinely sincere. I believe that in spite of trying to live a religious life, he knew deep down inside where it mattered the most, something was missing, and he wanted to address that need. That's why he asked, What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Listen to it again. What good thing, note this, must I do to get eternal life? Or to get eternal life, excuse me. You could paraphrase that and say, what box am I missing? You see the problem? 
The problem wasn't that there was some religious box that he had failed to check. The problem was what he was putting in the box. He was completely focused on what he could do. And that's why Jesus challenged him the way he did. In Matthew 19 and verse 21, again, Jesus said, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. The rich young man was looking for what he could do. Maybe I should say he was looking for what more he could do to have peace inside about eternal life, but that's not how it works. Eternal life, this is what the Bible teaches us, eternal life, salvation, whatever term you want to use to describe it, is for people who despair of their own efforts, who realize in and of themselves they are hopelessly sinful and incapable of improving on their own. The Bible teaches us that salvation is for those who recognize that their only hope is found in absolute and complete surrender to Jesus. Jesus didn't ask him to sell his possessions and give the money to the poor because money is bad somehow. He asked him to do that because salvation requires a willingness to follow Jesus at all costs. And Jesus looked in this man's heart and knew that his wealth was always going to be a stumbling block. And this is where things get messy. This is where things get messy because... I've been that rich young ruler, that rich young man, and my suspicion is that some of you have been too. Maybe some of you are right now. And here's what I mean by that. It's easy, once you become a Christian, to fall into the trap of thinking, all I need to do is check the boxes. And honestly, I actually think church can sometimes be guilty of making this easy for a lot of people. It might look something like this. Attend church with some level of regularity. Check. Live a moral life, relatively speaking, in comparison to the rest of the world. Check. Volunteer to serve in some capacity. Check. Give some level of your income back to God to support the ministry of the church or of some missionary or some parachurch organization. Check. But the truth is, God calls all of us to a deeper level of commitment and a deeper level of sacrifice. But oftentimes, we're unwilling to obey that call because we've already got our own idea of what it looks like to follow Jesus. We've already checked our own boxes, so to speak. But we got the wrong thing in the box. The only box that needs to be checked in your life and my life is one that says complete surrender. And here's the truth, folks. I don't want to make this easy for any of you. I don't want to make it easy for myself. I don't want to make this easy for anyone. And so I'm going to ask you a hard question. Is there anything, if you're willing to be honest today, Is there anything that you're hanging on to in your life that would keep you from following Jesus in the same way that he called this rich young man to follow him? And he called him to give up everything, to be willing to give up absolutely everything to follow him.
And it could be anything. Wealth isn't the only thing that keeps people from completely surrendering to Christ. It could be your pride. It could be a relationship. It could be a a possession that you have. It could be a, a hobby or an interest that you have, a pursuit in your life. It could be anything. If you can answer my question with a yes, if you can be honest today and say there is something that you're hanging on to that honestly stands between you and complete surrender, then you need to bow your heart to Jesus. You need to fall on your face in the presence of Jesus in genuine brokenness and give up whatever it is that you're holding on to. And listen, that's something you need to do today, right now, today. Man, we are living in some difficult times. 2020 was a more than a difficult year. And while I know we're all glad that a new year has come, the difficulty remains. But I have a confession to make. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I thought about this a lot when I was away on my brief sabbatical. I'm not sure I really want things to go back to the way they were before any of us even heard the words COVID-19 or coronavirus or pandemic. Now, let me qualify that for a moment. I want, to see our, I want to see our church full again on the weekend. Honestly, don't take this the wrong way because I wear a mask everywhere I need to wear a mask, but I don't want to wear a mask anymore. I want the day to come when I don't have to worry about that anymore. I want to take my wife out to dinner and to a movie without worrying about it. And on and on and on. I, I want things like that to get back to the way they were, what we might call back to normal. But I don't want to go back to just checking off the boxes of my pastoral responsibility, thinking that's all I need to do. I don't want to go back to feeling like while our church was doing some really great things in our community and the world when it came to serving people, there was at the same time a definite power missing when it came to reaching lost people and seeing lives being genuinely transformed. I don't want to go back to consumer Christianity where so many people who come to church are more concerned about what they want than about the souls of people who are lost. And on and on and on. And if it takes brokenness, the brokenness of being willing to let go of everything, the brokenness of complete surrender to make that happy, then I say bring on the brokenness because God uses broken things. He uses broken soil to produce a crop, broken clouds to give rain, broken grain to give bread, broken bodies sometimes to give strength. I think about Peter after his denial of Jesus, after he betrayed Jesus by saying three different times he didn't even know who he was, I think of the brokenness of Peter after that happened where he was alone in the darkness weeping. That's the picture that's painted in the end of Matthew's gospel. It took Peter's brokenness to bring him to a place where he had the opportunity to be stronger and more powerful as a follower of Jesus than he ever could have been on his own. 
And here's the thing about brokenness. It's messy. But messy is okay with God. In fact, messy is more than okay with God. God uses messy to make us whole. God uses messy to use us ultimately, to use us in more powerful ways than we could have ever been used on our own. And so I say, bring on the brokenness. Let it get messy if it leads to a deeper love and a deeper commitment to being who God has called us to be, to being who Jesus knows we can be, and serving him in a way that actually makes an impact on the community and the world. Remember those words Mike Cammy spoke to Bob Buford in that story that I told at the beginning of our message. He said, Bob, I've been listening to you for a couple of hours. You told me a lot about your interests and your passions. I'm going to tell you what's in the box for you. I can tell you it's either money or Jesus Christ. If you can tell me which it is, I can tell you the strategic implications of that choice. If you can't tell me, we're going to oscillate, excuse me, you're going to oscillate back and forth between those two values and be confused. And Bob Buford, after just a short time of thinking, said, well, if it has to be one or the other, I'll put Jesus Christ in the box. So here's my question to all of us who like to check off those boxes. What's in your box? There's only one right answer. And that's complete surrender. And if that's the life you're willing to live, then that will be a life of power. That will be a life of effective ministry. That will be a life that brings honor to Jesus. I want you to pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for our time together. And I have one simple prayer as we close. Help everyone who is listening, and I'll put myself at the top of the list, all of us, to be willing to ask ourselves the question, what's in the box? And help us to say, it's complete surrender. Complete surrender to Jesus. No looking back. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.